Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19. I said it's an honor to be back here this morning. It does feel something of a homecoming. I don't think Rachel and I have been here uh, this whole year, really. It's been a, been a minute, so it's good to see some familiar faces and new faces. And thank you all for inviting me back, so... As I said, many of you have known me for years and years, and uh, if you know me, you know one of the things that I've consistently struggled with in my life is uh, just sadness and, and despair. It's something that I'm prone to that's easy for my heart to fall into, and it's something that we all struggle with, with to one degree or another, at one time or another. Uh, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that, We have our times of natural sadness. We have, too, our times of depression when we cannot do otherwise than hang our heads. The trees are not always green. The sap sleeps in them in the winter, and we have winters, too. And he would definitely know something about that as he struggled with sadness and despair over his life as well, even in the midst of a thriving and blessed ministry. And so if these times of sadness and these emotional winters, as Spurgeon says, will hit all of us, how are we to respond to them? What would God have us to do when we can't do anything but cry? What hope is there in the world and in God's word for these things? Well, our passage this morning in 1 Kings delves into a season of sorrow of one of the greatest prophets of God in the Old Testament. And God's reaction to that season. So as we turn to 1 Kings 19, uh, we're going to read the chapter and see what the Lord has to say when we feel down, when we have sadness and despair in our hearts, when we enter into these seasons of time when we are not as joyful as we want to be, when things don't go the way we want them to. So, in 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and drank and ate and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore the the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Pray with me, if you will. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning knowing that you are the Lord, you are the God, you are God over all the earth, and we ask that you would be with us this morning as we um, come to this text, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, that you would help us in our weaknesses and our failings to see what you would have for us. I pray that you'd be with me and help me to, to speak well of you, um, that your name would be lifted up. Be with us in this crime in this time in Christ's name. Amen. Can you remember the first time you felt sadness? I can. It was on my seventh birthday. I was very excited for my birthday party. Uh, I had invited all my friends. I'd made handmade invitations. They were terrible, uh, but I they were dear to my heart. Uh, my mom had bought a whole case of Pepsi and a whole big box of Slim Jims, which is every seven-year-old's dream. And I was just so excited for this party. And I'd set up the Slim Jims and Pepsis on my dresser in a particular way. And I was just so, I had so much excitement and I had so many expectations for how this party was going to go. And then the time came for the party and 15 minutes, 20 minutes, no one showed up. And about 30 minutes, one person came, one of my friends came and he and I had a good time together. We had a way too many Slim Jims. Uh, but even though we, we had a good time with just ourselves, I still couldn't shake the sadness of my expectations and my desires for my party not being met. The loneliness and sorrow that I felt over what I wanted versus what actually was. And that's a small thing, right? That's, I mean, it's a birthday party. It was big at the time, but looking back now, it's, it's more funny to me than anything. But I'm sure many of us can remember the first time that we felt lonely or sad or disappointment, whether from small things like a birthday party or from big things. And the unfortunate part of life is that these times of sadness, these unmet expectations don't end when we're young. They don't end when we're seven. And they're not always so small. We grow up and life doesn't go the way we expect it to. Our families don't turn out the way that we wanted. Our jobs don't turn out the way that we expected. Our health and bodies don't act like the way we want them to. Our loved ones don't live as long as we hoped they would. Our lives are full of unmet expectations and unfulfilled desires. And as we encounter those, our desires and what we know ought to be or what we want to be and what is don't match up and we feel lonely and sad, sorrowful, because we know that things ought to be one way, but they are another And so what we see in 1 Kings 19 this morning is that the great prophet Elijah is dealing with the same things that we deal with. James in his epistle tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, that he was just a normal guy. And that's certainly true when it comes to sadness. And that's one of the reasons why I love the scriptures in this story in particular is because it shows us Elijah, it shows us Elijah in a very honest and believable and human light. So this morning I want us to look at Elijah's life here in 1 Kings 19. Look at his sorrow and the Lord's provision for his sorrow. And, help, and hopefully we can see how those 
what the Lord tells Elijah, what happens in this chapter, can encourage us in our own times of despair and sadness. So this morning we're going to look at three things in this passage. We're going to look at the occasion for Elijah's sorrow, God's provision for Elijah's sorrow, and then Elijah's response to God's provision. So as a bit of context to really fully understand Elijah's heart and mind going into this passage, I think it's important to remember where he was coming from, where he just got out of. If you remember your Old Testament, you know that Elijah was a prophet of the Lord under the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who were wicked, wicked people. 1 Kings 16.33 says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab built a temple to the false god Baal in the capital city of Israel. He took part in pagan worship. He married outside the covenant people. Not only that, but he married a woman who was so against the Lord and his people that she killed any prophets of the Lord she found. In the kingdom of the Lord, it was a capital offense to worship the Lord. And so into this darkness and vileness, God brings Elijah And many of you know the story that Elijah told Ahab there would be no rain for three years until Elijah lifted the drought as a judgment on the nation to remind them who was really God. And so for three years there was no rain, drought and famine and pain and suffering. And in the third year, Elijah proposed a contest between the Lord and Baal. 450 priests of Baal would prepare a bull and slaughter it and put it on an altar, and Elijah would do the same. But they weren't supposed to set any fire to the altars. They weren't supposed to light the wood on fire themselves. Instead, they were to pray, and the God who answered with fire would be the real God. And it must have been quite a sight as we read in 1 Kings 17. We see 450 pagan priests preparing this sacrifice and praying and crying and cutting themselves and dancing from early morning to well past noon, trying to elicit a response. But we see that no response comes, that Baal is powerless. And then after several, several hours of hundreds of prophets running around, crying out and doing all this pagan pageantry, after all of that, Elijah builds builds his altar, altar, prepares the bull, pours at least five gallons of water on top of it all, and he prays very simply in 1 Kings 18, 36, 37, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Just a two-sentence two prayer. And fire falls from heaven. It consumes the bull and the stones of the altar and the water itself. And so the people who were there turned back to the Lord after seeing this miraculous divine intervention and they kill the false prophets of Baal. And on top of that, after the fire and the repentance of the people, the Lord opens the heavens and rain starts falling on Israel and showers the land. And then if that wasn't enough, miracle after miracle, the Lord gives Elijah supernatural speed as Ahab goes back to the city to tell Jezebel and others what had happened, Elijah runs past his, horse, his horses and his chariots and makes his way to the city before Ahab. The Lord triumphs over Baal. The Lord triumphed over the prophets of Baal. The Lord triumphed over the worshipers of Baal, the king of queen of Baal. And Elijah was his instrument in doing so. And this was Elijah's dream. This was everything he'd been hoping for and praying for for years. Undoubtedly, he'd had his own friends killed, uh, friends, other friends who were prophets, other worshipers of the Lord. He'd known people who had died. He, this was 
serious for him. And this was what he had wanted for so long. This was his moment of joy as the glory of God came down in fire and water and repentance. It was everything he could have hoped for until it, well, it wasn't. You see, Elijah thought that the struggle was over. He thought that the victory was total, but the battle was not over yet. In verse 2 and 3 of 1 Kings 19, we see that Jezebel, upon hearing what happened at Mount Carmel, swore to kill Elijah. (coughs) Excuse me, and you might think that surely someone who had just seen miraculous power and glory displayed and seen God obviously vindicated would, would just kind of scoff or laugh at the puny threats of Jezebel. That's how I'd certainly write the story if I were writing it. But no, Elijah becomes afraid and he runs for his life. He ran. And we see that he abandons his servant because he knows that he's not coming back. And he travels into the wilderness where he sits under a broom tree and prayed in verse 4 of chapter 19. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, this is an interesting prayer. You could certainly read the first half of it in a positive way, kind of how Jesus prayed, into my hands I commend your spirit on the cross, a kind of recognition that his work was complete and he was content to go to be with God. But the second half of the prayer precludes such a reading. Because when Elijah says, for I am no better than my father's, he's revealing what is lying in his heart. He's showing what he's feeling and what he's thinking. Because if you remember the accounts of the fathers of Israel traveling through the same wilderness that Elijah was now in, you remember that they continually doubted the Lord. You remember they doubted his goodness and provision despite seeing the Lord provide for them time after time, miracle after miracle. Over and over again, the fathers of Israel doubted God's power and goodness. And so when Elijah says that I am no better than my fathers, this was not a good thing. You see, the occasion for Elijah's sadness was twofold. There were two main reasons why he was upset, why he wanted to die. First, He expected the circumstances of life to be different. He expected the total renunciation of Baal and the exaltation of the Lord. He expected the king and queen to either repent or be killed like the prophets of the Lord they had killed. He expected to be received as a hero and a champion of the true God. He expected to be welcomed back with open arms and and loved. Instead... When he got back to the city, Baal still reigned in Israel. The queen still sought to kill the prophets of the Lord, and he was treated as Israel's most wanted criminal. Nothing had changed, at least not in the way that he had wanted and desired and prayed for and expected. That's the first occasion for his sadness, that his expectations were unmet. And the second is more subtle, but far more insidious. You see, Elijah had been living in that reality for at least three years. He'd been a wanted man the whole time. He was uh, the whole time of the drought. The queen and king had been pagans for years. Nothing had really changed. He should have been used to it. There's no real thing that would have precipitated this kind of sadness in him except that he expected better of himself. He should have realized after seeing God work miracle after miracle 
he should have realized after seeing what God had done that God would protect him. And he realizes that. He knows that he is not as uh, faithful as he thought he was. His, he thought, um, excuse me, not only were his expectations of life subverted and what he wanted out of life, his expectations of himself were subverted. And he realizes in the wilderness that he's not who he thought he was. He's no better than his father's. It can be difficult to deal with the harsh realities of life, but it can be even more difficult when those realities reveal that we're not as, we're not as strong as we thought we were. We're not as faithful as we thought we were. We're not who we thought we were when we ourselves let ourselves down, when our expectations of our own character are unmet. And so, overcome by his own sin and the lack of change, Elijah succumbs to his sorrow and prays for God to let him die and be done with life. He's not interested in change. He's not interested in continue on. He is so tired and so despairing, so upset with how life has turned out and how his own character has truly turned out, that he just wants to die and get it over with. And this is a dark place that Elijah is in. Here's the man who prayed for three years and there was no rain. The man who prayed for fire and fire came down. He raised a young boy from the dead one time. He prayed and God gave life to someone who died. When Elijah prayed, God answered. And he prays here for God to let him die because he's so upset and overwhelmed. And for the first recorded time, God does not answer Elijah's prayer. Instead, we see that God provides for Elijah in his sorrow over his unmet expectations of life and himself. So what is God's provision? How does God provide for Elijah? In verse 5, Elijah sleeps and God sends an angel to bring Elijah food and water. This is a very biblical uh, basis for a good nap and snack when you're feeling sad. Sometimes that's all you need. But not so for Elijah. God sends him food and water, and he drinks and eat, he eats and drinks and sleeps again. And once again, in verse 7, the angel brings food and water. Only this time, the angel says something very interesting to Elijah. The angel says in verse 7, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. So this is the first time we're hearing about a journey. Elijah just fled into the wilderness and sat down to die. He didn't have any directive from God. God hadn't given him any instruction to go this way. He was out on his own, following his own Heart, which has led him, led him here. So what is the angel talking about? What we see in God's response to Elijah through this angel is something really, really stunning and beautiful. You see that God is telling Elijah here that he's not done with him yet, that there's a journey for him to go on. Despite his sadness, despite his prayer for death, God is not finished with him yet. And God doesn't lavish just unrealistic comfort on Elijah God doesn't coddle him. God doesn't tell him to just pull himself up by his bootstraps. He doesn't tell him to man up. He doesn't tell him just to get over it and push all his sadness into an emotional safe and throw away the key. He doesn't tell him that it'll all be okay and that he's not that bad. Those are all ways that we can so often run to when we deal with our own sorrow. No, the Lord brings to Elijah the truth. And he says to him that the journey is too great for you. He's confirming to Elijah that, no, you're not enough. You're not able to do this on your own. You're right to despair and sorrow over your state, over your sin, because you are sinful, because you can't do it 
Your right to feel upset over the state of the world. Your right to feel sorrow and despair of unmet expectations in this broken world because you're not enough. He tells him that the journey is too great for him. He recognizes the reality of Elijah's weaknesses and sorrow. But the Lord provides. The Lord gives him supernatural food that gives what Elijah lacks. And he goes in the strength of that food. The Lord recognizes the reality of Elijah's sadness and sorrow and weakness, but rather than answering his prayers or denying the reality of it, he provides for him through it. So Elijah goes. And in verse 9, he makes his way to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and lodged in a cave there. And this cave is a cave we've seen before in Scripture, most likely. It's probably, most likely, the same cave that Elijah had been sheltered, that Moses had been sheltered in by God himself in Exodus. If you remember, Moses asked God to show him his glory, and God said, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and pass before you and proclaim my name. And so Elijah goes to the cave and he lodges in it. And the Lord asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so we get to see Elijah's own analysis of his situation, his own explanation for what he's doing here, why he's sad, why he's not following what God has told him to do, but instead run away. So we see in verse 10 his explanation. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. There's a lot to dive in here, but in the interest of time, um, I'll try to keep it short since some of this we've already looked at. But Elijah's issue at the root of it all is that he feels he's been wronged. We've talked about how his expectations haven't been met, and he thinks that he has been treated unfairly. In his mind, he's been faithful and obedient and true, but nothing has changed the way he wanted. He says straight out that he's been very jealous for the Lord. He's done miracles. He's worked hard. He's put his own life on the line. And yet the people of Israel are still living in rebellion and wickedness. What's intrinsic in this comment that is very, I think, important to grasp is that Elijah's complaint is really with God. The people have been doing these things for years and he hasn't gotten this upset. Nothing, again, nothing has really changed apart from the contest of the gods and the return to the status quo. Elijah is essentially saying to God, I thought you knew what you were doing. I thought this plan of yours was going to work. I thought you would have more power, more ability, more strength to enact change. Don't you know? It's your people that are, just, uh, that are uh, profaning your covenant. It's your altars they're throwing down. It's your prophets they're killing. Elijah, in essence, is really saying that he's been more jealous for the Lord than the Lord has been. His sorrow and sadness have overcome him, and now instead of wanting to escape through death, he's, he's become bitter. And this is so relatable that it hardly, really, probably bears mentioning, but we'll get, we will. When sorrows come and our own expectations are met, when we realize we're not who we thought we were, when depression and loss and grief rear their heads, we oftentimes feel the same things that Elijah feels. We feel that God doesn't know what he's doing. We feel that he's not for us. We feel that he's asleep at the wheel. Don't you know that... My loved one loved you. Why, why did they die? Don't you know that I'm following you as best I can? Why do I feel so alone? Don't you know that the world already thinks you're powerless? Why, why can't, won't you heal me of this illness? 
we doubt and rage at God in our sadness because like Elijah, we think our expectations are best and our desires are right and our wants are just. We think that our plans are the same as God's plans and if they aren't, then our plans are definitely better. Well, God could have answered Elijah's prayer for death at any time and he could have just struck him down at any time just as he can, to, just as he can do to us. But instead, we see that God has patience on this poor, despairing man, just as he does with us. Verse 11, God goes and tells him to follow in the steps of Moses and to go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And there we read about the great wind that passes by, the fire, the earthquake, and then the Lord coming in the low whisper and asking Elijah again, what are you doing here, Elijah, in verse 13? The fire and the wind and the earthquake raged, but we read that the Lord was not in them. Because there on that mountain, the Lord was reminding Elijah, he was encouraging Elijah uh, with what he should have already known, what he should have remembered, what we all must remember in the midst of heartbreak and sadness and unmet expectations. God was telling Elijah that divine silence does not mean divine inactivity. That God does not always act in the ways we expect or want. That he doesn't do what we think is best all the time. He was telling Elijah, I could come and fire. I could burn the whole nation down. I could raise the temple of Baal in in Samaria. I could destroy the whole world if I wanted to. I could come in wind. I could blow down every high place, every Asherah pole, every pagan site. I could blow it all down. I could come in earthquake and bring all the pagan temples down to the ground in a millisecond if I wanted to. He was reminded Elijah that he was God and no molecule of air or fire or earth or human heart is outside of his control and plan. And if he'd wanted it any different, he would have it so. And so the only reason that Elijah's expectations have been unmet are because God in his infinite wisdom and divine sovereignty have ordained that they would be unmet. He was reminding Elijah that the issues Elijah was facing were not beyond his power to fix, that our tragedies and sorrows are not beyond his power to fix, that they're not because of divine inability or inactivity. Rather, he was reminding Elijah that his plan and his ways are best because he is God. God will do as he sees fits, as what meets his expectation, as what's best for his glory, as what's right by his standard, which is the only standard of right and wrong. And that's hard. That's, that's a hard thing because life is hard. When I think of the trouble and evil in the world and the, and the trouble and evil and the sadness, I feel that uh, my family feels at times that we all feel. I can see myself in Elijah's shoes crying out to God, don't you know, don't you know? I think I can understand what he felt, why he did what he did. But the answer to us is the same answer to Elijah, that God does know, that God does know our sorrows. He knows our hurt, and he knows what is best for us in the whole world because he is God and we are not. But instead of smiting Elijah for his audacity to question God and complain against God, Instead of consuming Elijah in fire or with wind or the earthquake, he has grace and comes to Elijah in a small voice and reminds him who he's talking to, the one who ordained all things and holds all things, the one who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. The Lord's provision for Elijah and ourselves, ultimately, is himself. 
He knows the journey is too great for us. And he reminds us here that our hope in sorrow, our hope when the journey is too great for us, is that he is God, that he is good, that he will punish the wicked, that he will make all wrongs right in the end, that he knows what he's about and what he's doing, even when it doesn't seem that way, even when life is going crazy, even when it feels like everything's falling apart around us, our only hope and our only solace is that God is in control, that he knows what he's doing. In the midst of sorrow and sadness, the only encouragement for something as big as the weight of the brokenness of the world and our own sin and failures and unmet expectations is God himself. So we see God calls out to Elijah. He reminds him of his nature, his power, uh, his plan. He reminds Elijah of these things and speaks to him in a low whisper and asks him again, what are you doing here? And if you were writing this story and God asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? How do you think you would write this ending to the story? I'd have him realize his faithlessness. I'd have him realize that he hadn't been trusting God, but instead of been trusting in his own plans and his own abilities, I'd have him realize that and repent and worship and fall down and learn to love God more deeply. That's how I wish the story would end. Uh, But instead, it doesn't end that way. As in our own lives so often, Elijah does not seem to respond correctly, but instead continues in his foolishness. In verse 14, he repeats the same complaint he had at the beginning. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars. He doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't seem to be any less sad or bitter. The grand display of God doesn't seem to take hold in his mind and his heart. His response isn't the fantastic repentant or trust that we may want. It's not change, and but ultimately it's oftentimes very similar for us. We struggle to trust. We struggle to change. We struggle with sorrow and grief for years and years and years sometimes. Sometimes we have winters that never seem to end, and for Elijah it's the same. But despite our struggles and despite Elijah's struggles, the Lord is still gracious and merciful to him. The Lord doesn't answer Elijah's prayer even after he corrects Elijah and Elijah still doesn't get it. But instead, the Lord continues to use Elijah despite his bitterness and sorrow. In verses 15 through 18 of chapter 19, it gives Elijah more work to do. And we see Elijah goes and does as God commands. And oftentimes we know the promises of God. We know what we ought to do and what we ought to feel. But it's difficult. We don't seem to be able to get it into our own hearts But we continue, and even when we can't understand why God is doing something, we keep following him. God will not give us explanations for everything that happens. We won't see what he's working or doing through our sorrow and unmet expectations. Elijah didn't know that thousands of years later there'd be a guy named Jacob Hale who'd be reading his story and crying over it because it speaks to his heart and his experience and his sins. And frankly, if Elijah did know that, I'm sure he probably wouldn't care that much. It wouldn't have made it all that much better at the time. Elijah still feels the sorrow over the sin of the people and his unmet desires. But while it doesn't seem that he gets what's going, he continues on. He goes down out of the wilderness and obeys the Lord. The Lord doesn't leave him or abandon him. 
He stays with him and continues to answer Elijah's prayers going forward. Elijah continues. He prays for healing. He prays for different miracles, and the Lord answers those prayers. But the Lord never answered his prayer in the wilderness to die. Indeed, it seems that the Lord was so set against answering that prayer throughout Elijah's life that when it came time for Elijah to pass on, the Lord let him to, didn't let him die in any kind of normal way. Instead, in 2 Kings 2, we read that Elijah was taken up to heaven in, a hev- in heavenly chariots and fire. That's, that's divine stubbornness right there. That's, sometimes the Lord won't answer a prayer to the point where he takes you up to heaven in a f- chariots and fire. <laughs> There's only one other person in the Old Testament that seems to have something similar to happen to him, and that's Enoch in Genesis 5. We read there that he walked with God or pleased God and was not found because God took him. It seems to be a similar thing to Elijah. And I think that's very telling because despite all Elijah's sorrow and doubt and failings at the end of his life, he found favor with God. He found grace. The Lord had mercy on him and was gracious to him. A man with a nature like ours. Doubting, sorrowful, sinful Elijah. And I love this story of Elijah because so often it's my story. So often I'm sad because life isn't going the way that I want it to. Because I feel alone or disappointed or hurt. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong to feel sorrow and sadness when when things aren't the way that they ought to be. Elijah was right to feel sorrow at Israel's continued disobedience and rebellion. We're right to feel sorrow when we're faced with things that are, are sinful and wrong and shouldn't be. Sadness and despair isn't wrong in and of itself. The issue is in our, is in our response to those things. The issue is in our response to the weight of the journey ahead of us. I love this story for these things. But there's another story that I think is better. See, there was another man in the Bible in a very similar situation to Elijah. There was another man who was all alone on a mountaintop praying to God out of sorrow and despair. There was another man whose generation had all but forgotten God. There's another man whose life the enemies of God were seeking to take away. Matthew 26, 36 through 42, we read, And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Not as I will, but as you will. A little while later, again for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, this cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. Here we see Jesus sorrowful and troubled like Elisha. He said his soul was sorrowful unto death. He was despairing and upset. But unlike Elisha, Christ trusted that God knew what he was about. He trusted that God would do right. Christ knows what it's like to go through pain and loss and suffering and loneliness. And yet his ultimate source of comfort was that God's will would be done. And that's the only hope we have in the midst of our loss and our sorrow and our unmet expectations. That's really the only solace that's worth 
anything. We don't bottle our sorrow up. We don't wallow in self-pity. We don't (laughs) turn bitter against the world and God. Instead, we look at our sorrows and our sadness and we say with Christ, Lord, we don't want this. This is wrong. This is... Let this cut pass from us, but nevertheless, not our desires, not our expectations, not our will, but yours. You are God, and you know what is right, and this is the path you have for us. We trust you that it's for our good and for your glory, even if it costs us our lives. Christ understood what God was trying to show Elijah on the mountaintop, that if we try to handle our sorrows on our own strength, if we try to just make ourselves cheerful, if we just try to make our plans happen no matter what, if we try to fix a broken world on our own strength, we will fail. We'll become bitter and hostile toward God, towards God. We'll be so concerned with getting the cup of God, that God has for us to pass by seeking comfort in other things that we'll lose sight of the comfort that God is offering in Himself through these hard parts of life. We'll lose sight of the fact that Christ knows the depth of our sorrow because he felt it. We'll lose sight of the only the way that we can even get through difficult seasons, our emotional winters, our sorrows and our sadness. The only way that we can have strength for the journey is by recognizing that if God was right, if it was his will to bring sorrow and sadness and death to his own perfect son, to bring about eternal salvation for his people, And to make all things right in the end, then surely our sorrows and our sadness have purpose and meaning too. Even if we don't know what they are. That God is right. That he knows what he's about. And so, as we come into the season, the winter season, almost halfway through or a little over. Dark days loom ahead. Winter is going to end soon for us. But our emotional winters can continue on. And as a new year brings unmet expectations and loss and grief and sorrow, our only hope, the only true comfort is that we can trust God will do right. We can trust Him with our sorrows and sadness. We can trust Him that He will make all things right. That there will be a day that Christ will wipe every tear from our eye. There will be no more sorrow. For now, though, the journey is too great for us. But praise God, nothing is too great for him. And we can trust in his goodness and sovereignty. And through that, have strength for our journey. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We, some of us, are dealing with things bigger than I can understand. At times, this type of advice can feel pat and easy, but it's all we have, that you know what you're about, that you are sovereign over every molecule, every atom, every heart. Lord, we trust you. We ask that you would help us grow our trust for you and help us to rest in your goodness. Know that whatever it is we're facing, whatever it is that comes ahead, whatever it is that is happening in our lives, bringing us to sorrow and sadness, that you are good through it. Pray that we would feel the depth of brokenness deeply, Lord. That we wouldn't bottle it up, but rather that we would use that as a way to look forward to the day when you will make all things right, that we will continue to trust you. Give us strength for our journeys. In Christ's name, amen.